Hey everybody, thanks again for being part of today's SCF Online. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 and 5. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. And here's what we want to focus in on today. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. Whenever you demand your own way, whenever you demand your own way, you will be irritable and you will keep records of being wronged. Another word for that is resentful. When you demand your own way, you will be irritable and you will be resentful. Love gives people space. It gives people space and it doesn't try to control them. Well, before we uh, get any further into the message, let's just take a moment to pray. Our Father, I pray today that you would take this message time and that you would make it come alive. Would you give it life, give it your life. And Father, whatever might be in our lives that is blocking the flow of your love into us and then through us to others, God, I pray whatever might be blocking that, that you would collapse it, you would abolish it in the powerful name of Jesus. And if there's any demonic energy working against this, we oppose that in the powerful name of Jesus. And we ask God that you would um, press deeply into us your word today with authority, not merely the authority of some human speaker, but God, your authority, and that you would make us more to be the outrageous and radical lovers that you've created us to be, lovers of you, lovers of each other, lovers of all others, loving the way that you, uh, Jesus, have loved us. Amen. Well, we're back in our Forward Together in Love series for today and for next week. And then we're going to put it away for a while. We're going to put it away for some months, uh, maybe even permanently, we'll see. There's certainly more chapter to go through, but um, we're going to put it away uh, and we're going to do some other things. So uh, this week and next week. So today is uh, Sunday, March 20th, and next week will be the 27th, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll put it away after that. The following Sunday will be April 3rd. We're going to have a guest uh, speaker with us, Charlie Mashenter, who is the executive director of our denominational family, the Be in Christ Church of Canada. Charlie's going to be preaching. He's going to lead us in communion. We're going to live stream that service. And uh, spoiler alert, I have a feeling he's going to preach from Isaiah chapter 40, an amazing chapter of God's word. Then the next Sunday is going to be Palm Sunday. And uh, let me just say Palm Sunday evening. Uh, we're going to have a special worship night here at the church building. And so on April 10th in the evening, if you're in the vicinity, we'd love to have you come and join us for an evening of worship. And then, of course, later that week, we'll have 
our Good Friday service, and then the following Sunday is Easter Sunday, which is like Super Bowl uh, for church. And then following that, we're going to jump into a new teaching series, and uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about that series as we get a bit closer. But for today, forward together in love, and specifically today and next week, we want to consider the aspect of love that love doesn't try to control people. As we've said uh, a number of times as we've been going through this teaching series in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is not simply giving us a, a list of do's and don'ts. Paul is not simply saying, hey, go out and try really, really hard not to control people or go out and try really hard not to be boastful. No, what Paul is saying is that when you walk in the fullness of love, this is what it looks like. These things that Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 13 are not moralistic oughts and ethical to-dos and don'ts. They're not things to be legalistically and universally applied. Rather, they are simply general characteristics of what it looks like to walk in love. And I point that out because there are times where it is actually the loving thing to do to insist on your own way. For those of you who are parents, you know this. Um, you know, as parents, we want to try and influence as much as we can. But let's face it, there are times where our kids are just out to lunch. And uh, we're the ones in the know. And it's the loving thing for us to do to insist on our own way. And I think this is true in, uh, you know, sometimes in leadership as well. And, you know, not only that, but there are people who really don't insist on their own way enough. There are, um, you know, some people who maybe have kind of a low self-image and they somehow feel that their opinions are, are really not worthy uh, of being shared. And um, so I say that to say this, that's, this is not an ethical rule that we are to religiously and legalistically apply at all times and in all places. Really what Paul is giving us is a general characteristic of love that it does not try to control people. And this is so important. And I believe that if we really get this, if we live life not trying to control and get our own way, what we'll find is that we're not as irritable. What we'll find is that we're not as resentful. Why is it that most of us and some of us more than others, and some of us obsessively so, try to insist on our own way. Things have to look the way that we think they should look. People uh, need to think the way that we um, want them to think, and people have to act the way that we want them to act, and decisions need to be made the way that we think decisions ought to be made. Why do we do that? Well, I think the simple answer, if we're willing to be honest and to, um, you know, if we have even a, a, a little bit of self-awareness, I think we would come to the conclusion that we, we, uh, we, we, we think that way because we, we think that our perceptions of the world are the right perceptions. And therefore, we think that our opinions about what ought to be done in response are the right opinions. And this, like everything else, goes back to the Garden of Eden. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3, where 
Um, God gives the prohibition to Adam and Eve that they would then violate. They violate the prohibition. God had said, stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve, we know, ate the fruit of that uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They immediately became judges rather than lovers. And we have been addicted to judging ever since. We're addicted to operating out of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that account, uh, you know, think of the words of the enemy to Adam and Eve prior to them eating that fruit. Um, Here's what the enemy says. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, so often we talk about the enemy as a liar and he is, but here in this deception of Adam and Eve, he engages truth. You will be like God, knowing good and evil, that there's truth there. In fact, here's what God says later in that same chapter. God says, um, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. There is a certain divinity to our knowledge of good and evil. Some theologians call this an omniscience mechanism. We think like God thinks. The only trouble is that we're not God. The knowledge of good and evil operates very, very well when paired with omniscience. Omniscience means all-knowing. God is omniscient. God is all-knowing. He knows everything. There is nothing that is ambiguous to God. He sees all things with perfect clarity. His knowledge of good and evil is accurate. It is perfectly accurate. And that is why God is the one and the only one who is uniquely equipped and qualified to judge good and evil. But when humans, you know, we get hold of this thing, we're not omniscience. We're not omniscient, rather, but this omniscience mechanism acts as if we were. We have a tendency to think that we're omniscient. Now, we'd never say that. We'd never say that out loud. I'm omniscient. I know everything. But we act like we are. We think we know what we, in fact, do not know. We think we have the privileged perspective on the world and therefore we want things to go our way. And when things don't go our way, well, we get mad at the world. Why is this world so stupid if they would only do uh, what I think then everything would be fine? We have a tendency to do that, don't we? That's the knowledge of good and evil. And because uh, human beings are living from a place of emptiness, trying to meet their own core longings themselves, and even we as followers of Jesus, whose core longings are fully met by God in Christ, we have a tendency to live as if from a place of emptiness, trying to meet our own core longings. And we feed ourselves with this idea that we know when we actually don't know. We think we know things and we project those onto the world. We're the ones who are um, in on right. 
And so therefore you should look like me and you should think like me and you should grow like me and you should make decisions uh, like the way I make decisions. And we feed ourselves with this knowledge. And not only that, but there is something about the knowledge of good and evil that rejects ambiguity. We don't like ambiguity. And again, part of that comes from living from a place of emptiness and where we're trying to meet our own core longings. And one of our chief core longings is the, is the longing to feel secure. And so if I can just make the world a clearer place where I know the ins and outs and I can just divide up everything neatly and understand the compartments, well, then I feel secure. Then I feel I'm in control. And we feed ourselves with that. But with God, absolutely nothing is ambiguous. But with our stolen knowledge, there is a tendency for us to want to impose on the world a clarity that is not there. That's our omniscience mechanism. Now, God is infinite. He's infinite in his knowledge. We are not. We're finite, we're finite people. And for finite people like us, the world is mostly ambiguous. Our perspectives of the world are so very, very limited, but we don't like that. And so we've got this tendency to engage the omniscience mechanism to insist that the world is clear and we impose on the world a clarity that is not there. We think the world should look the way that we think it should look and it should be my way or it should be our way. This kind of mindset, by the way, uh, characterizes religious fundamentalism. In religious fundamentalism, everything is so clear, so obvious. My way is the right way because my way is Yahweh. And the world just so clearly divides up into good guys and bad guys, uh, white hats and black hats. And the good guys are the guys who think like me and the bad guys are the, are the people that don't think like me. And we impose on the world a clarity that is not there because we're really uncomfortable with anything that is ambiguous. And we feed ourselves from the knowledge of good and evil. And therefore, we're insisting that the world must be our way. And you know, as, you, as we read the Bible, so much of what we read in the Bible uh, attacks our arrogant assumptions that we know things that we actually don't know. What we read in the Bible attacks our knowledge of good and evil. And there's uh, one book in the Bible that I think does this um, in just the most compelling way, and that is the book of Job. The book of, the book of Job is all about human beings coming to grips with the fact that we don't know things. Let me say that again. The book of Job is all about human beings coming to grips with the fact that we don't know things. You read the book of Job, you find out that Job gets into all this suffering, all this misery, all of this pain, and he's got these friends, right? And his friends, well, they all think they know. They think they have, you know, they, they know how the world works, and they're absolutely sure of that, and they insist on that. And for Job's friends, the world breaks down very clearly into uh, good guys and bad guys. 
God rewards the good guys and God punishes the bad guys. And, and Job, you know, his friends say, Job, you're suffering. Therefore, you're being punished. Therefore, you're one of the bad guys. And so Job's friends uh, say things to Job like this. Job, who being innocent has ever perished? Job, Job you're, you're perishing before our very eyes. Clearly, you're not innocent. Job, who being innocent has ever perished? You know, and, and so the reader, as we read this, we have to ask ourselves the question, well, are Job's friends, are they inferring this from the world or are they imposing this on the world? Because I would suggest to you that the innocent always perish. I think they're imposing something on the world that they wish was there, insisting that the world be their way. Here's another thing Job's friends say to Job, where were the upright ever destroyed? In other words, Job, we're literally watching you be destroyed before our very eyes. Clearly, you're not upright. Well, I don't know about you, but I can think of several examples where the, um, where the upright were destroyed and where the innocent perished. Here's another observation from Job's friends. This is in Job 4. As I have observed, that's, that's a key phrase, as I have observed, those who would plow evil and those who would sow trouble reap it. In other words, Job, his friends say, Job, the, the reason that your life is so awful right now is because you've plowed evil, you've sowed trouble, and now you're reaping trouble. And Job, we're, we're absolutely confident in this. Uh, we're absolutely sure that our observations of the world are from a privileged perspective. We are absolutely confident in our assessment of you. This is exactly how the world works. And so what Job sees his friends doing is they're feeding themselves on um, their supposed knowledge of good and evil. They're really trying to meet their own core longings with their supposed knowledge, trying to feel okay about themselves by their supposed knowledge. And the things that they're saying are not for Job's benefit, but for their own benefit. And so Job says some things back uh, to his um, friends. And Job says things like this, caravans turn aside from their roots. This is in uh, Job 6. Caravans turn aside from their roots. Why would they turn aside from their roots? Well, they, um, they, they turn to find safety or they turn to find water. But they go off into the wasteland and perish. In other words, bad decision. Uh, and they're disappointed because they were so confident. They were so confident that if we take this turn, we'll find what it is that we're looking for. The caravans of Tima look for water. The traveling merchants of Sheba look in hope. They are distressed. Notice this, because they had been confident. They arrive there only to be disappointed. They've taken this turn off of the route. They're so confident that, that they're going to find what they're looking for, but when they don't, well, they're so disappointed. They're so distressed because they've been so sure. They've been so confident. 
And so Job here says to his friends, he says, now you too, my friends, have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. In other words, Job Job says to his friends, you know, here you guys are, you're looking at me, you're seeing me in my suffering. You've taken a turn in the road and you are confident. You're confident that the whole world fits into your presuppositions. You've got God all figured out. You've got God in a box. You know everything. But now here you are facing a person like me. You see something dreadful and you're afraid. You're afraid because if I am as righteous as you are, then you know that what is happening to me could also happen to you. And you don't want to live in a world where what is happening to me could possibly happen to you. And so you, out of your fear, you're insisting that the world is the way that you want it to be. And so you're accusing me. You're charging me. You see, religious people do this all the time. We speak out of our own emptiness and out of our own fear and we impose things that we think we know that we actually don't know and people get hurt because of it. But Job isn't some um, innocent angel in, in this thing either. He really does the same thing all throughout the book. Job arrogantly thinks that he knows things that he really doesn't know. In fact, Job thinks that that God is the one who's behind everything that Job is going through. In fact, Job thinks that God is behind all the evil in the world. And so Job, throughout the book, really accuses God of some um, pretty horrendous things. In fact, Job, uh, here's one thing that Job uh, says to God. This is in Job 24, 12. Job says to God, from out of the city, the dying groan and the soul of the wounded cries for help, yet... God pays no attention to their prayer. Really, Job, you know that for a fact. Like, you're very confident of that. You've got some privileged perspective here. You're you're the omniscient one, Job. And I think what's happening with Job is his omniscience mechanism is fully engaged here. So in the book of Job... um, you, know, you get to the end of the book of Job. In fact, the last three chapters, 38, 39, and 40, um, you will find some monologues of God in those final three chapters. And basically, in those final three chapters, God says to Job and his friends, says, you know what? You guys don't know what you're talking about. You're ignorant. In fact, here, here's uh, something God says. This is in Job 38 too. And so God says, who is this? that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. And so God says to Job and to his friends, he says, you know what, when you guys talk, you don't shed light on the subject, you actually darken the subject by using words without knowledge. You don't know what you're talking about. In uh, chapter 40, uh, God says this, and the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. In other words, God says to Job, Job, are you going to pick a bone with me? Are you going to critique me? 
Job, are you going to be my prosecutor? Are you going to be the, the crown attorney prosecuting uh, me? Job, do you really think you know enough to do that? Job, do you have some inside track to me that I'm not aware of? Do you know more about me than I know about myself, Job? You really going to judge me? Something else God says, this is in Job 40, verse 8. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? And what God is saying here is, you know, Job, you're feeding yourself um, by your accusations. You're trying to feel okay about yourself by knowing stuff that you really don't know. So in these... Um, in these final three chapters in Job 38, 39, and 40, uh, God basically says to Job and his friends, you know what, guys? The world is really, really complex. And God goes on at length about the, the grandness of creation and the complexity of creation. And, and not only that, but God says, you know, in this whole world, it's, it's a war zone. And God talks about the behemoth and the Leviathan, these creatures that ancient peoples believed in. And God uses those as kind of a metaphor of, of, um, of, of warfare, spiritual warfare that is taking place on the earth. And God, it's like God says to Job and his friends, are you guys better equipped than I am to kind of manage this warfare? So until, you know, God says, until you guys know things, you need to stop accusing one another and you need to stop accusing me. And really the whole point of the book of Job seems like, um, you know, life on planet earth is surrounded by a whole lot of ambiguity, a lot of questions. There's a lot of stuff that we don't know. In fact, if you read the book of Job, if you read chapters one and two, uh, we, we often refer to chapters one and two as the prologue. And so as the reader, you read chapters one and two, and what it gives you is a special insight into what's going on in the rest of the book. In fact, you get a glimpse into the unseen world, and you get a sense of what is going on behind the scenes, um, and you get that from reading chapters one and two. But without chapters one and two, without that prologue, I would have no clue as to why Job enters into the suffering that he does. Without chapters one and two, you would have no idea why Job enters into the suffering that he went into. We wouldn't know. And really, that is the point of the book. The reader is given a perspective that the characters in the narrative don't have. And the purpose of that is to show the ignorance of the characters in the narrative, and without the prologue, we too would be equally ignorant. We don't know why things happen the way that they do. But because we've got this omniscience mechanism, we, we try to impose a clarity on the world. And, the, and, and kind of the point of the book of Job could be summarized in this statement. This comes from Job 38 too. Don't darken counsel with words without knowledge. Know what you don't know. Accept the ambiguity and live in that. And 1 Corinthians 13, learn to love each other within the tension of ambiguity. You know, um, 
read the Gospels, read about the life of Jesus, listen to what Jesus says, watch what Jesus does, how he responds and reacts. And, you know, take, um, take John 9 as an example. John chapter 9 is a, is a, a, a fantastic uh, chapter. It's fascinating. And um, I read John chapter 9. I watch what Jesus does. I listen to what he says. I see his reactions. I get to the end of chapter 9, and here's what I come away with. I don't know why one person is born blind and why another person isn't. I don't know. Or I read Luke chapter uh, 13. And Luke chapter 13 is a, a, just a fascinating chapter. And in Luke chapter um, 13, Jesus talks about uh, something that had happened. Uh, a tower had collapsed and it killed 18 people. And there were people in Jesus' day who, like Job's friends, assumed that those people that got killed when that tower fell, um, that they deserved it. They were somehow uh, being punished by God. And here's what, here's what Jesus says. This is uh, Luke 13, 4 and 5. Jesus, these are the words of Jesus. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, Jesus says. So I come away from Luke chapter 13 with this. I don't know why towers fall on certain people and not on others. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why towers fall at all. And you know, there's something else in Luke 13 that is like really unusual. There's this account of Pilate who uh, slaughters a bunch of Jews and mixes their blood with sacrifices. And I read that and I come away from Luke 13 going, I don't know why one group uh, gets slaughtered, why that happens to one group and not to another group. I don't know. I don't know. And I've got to know that I don't know. I've got to accept the ambiguity of that. Why is one person healed and another person not healed? Why, um, I don't know. Why is one person uh, demonized and another person not demonized? I don't know. I don't know. You know, Jesus never asked those questions. He never answered those questions. In fact, he refused those questions because when towers fall, the one question Jesus wants us to wrestle with and to ask is this, how can I help? What can I do in response? How can I bring the will of God to this situation? How can I bring the love of Jesus to this situation? How can I be a courier of the grace and the compassion of Jesus in this situation? How can I be his hands? How can I be his feet in this situation? We've got to know what we don't know and accept the ambiguity and apply this to our life. Because if we don't, if we don't, we're gonna insist that people look the way and act the way and think the way and make decisions the way and grow the way that we do it. When towers fall, know what you don't know. Learn to accept the ambiguity of not knowing. Learn to love each other within the tension of ambiguity. And learn to ask, 
What can I do in response to this situation? How can I help? How can I help bring the the will of God to this situation? How can I help bring the love of Jesus to this situation? How can I um, be a courier of his compassion and his grace? Unless somebody is a really close friend of mine, I really don't know them. Unless somebody has invited me in to their life to have a front row seat to their life, unless I'm up close and I can see the complexities and the details and the influences of their life, unless I have that front row seat, unless I've been invited in, I really don't know a whole lot about them and I've got to know that I don't know. And I've got to accept the ambiguity of not knowing. Unless I have that front row seat to your life, I really don't know your circumstances. I don't know your struggles. I don't know your personality. I don't know the social influences on your life. I don't know the spiritual influences on your life. I really don't know where you're at with God. I can see appearances, perhaps. I can see the externals, perhaps. But unless I'm a close insider, really, I don't know much of anything about you. There's a whole lot, in fact, that I don't know about you. Well, I know something about you. In fact, I would say I know two things about you. Whether I've known you five years, five months, five weeks, five minutes, or five seconds, I know two things about you. I know the worst thing, and I know the best thing. I know the worst thing about you, and I know the best thing about you. The worst thing about you is that your sin was so vile You were so lost, you were in such trouble that Jesus Christ, God himself, died for you on the cross. That's the worst thing about you. Your sin put Jesus on the cross. But I also know the best thing about you, and the best thing about you is that you are of unsurpassable worth, so much so that Jesus was willing to go to the cross for you. If that is all I know about you, That is enough for me to fulfill my purpose in life, for the love of God to flow through me to you, where I ascribe to you that unconditional worth. If that's all I know, then I've just got to accept the ambiguity of what I don't know about you. And if that's all that I know about you, your unconditional worth, the fact that your sin put Jesus on the cross, if that's all I know about you, I got to know that I don't know. And so I'm not going to insist that you look like me and that you talk like me and that you think like me. I'm going to give you lots of grace and lots of space for God to work in your life. Love gives people space. It doesn't try to control them. We're going to leave it here for today. But I'm really hopeful that you will come back next time. Because what we're going to do next time is we'll, we'll take kind of the, you know, the, the, the big theology picture that we've kind of uh, talked about today, the, the philosophical uh, nature of what we've talked about today, and then next week... Um, we're going to really try and get into application and really ask the question, so what? Why does it matter? 
Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for joining with us today. Look forward to seeing you soon. God bless.